Welcome, everyone, to episode two of the Dagger Report, the new Wizards podcast. I'm Mike Prada. I'm alongside Kyle Weedai, and I'm enjoying the tunes of the original rap song. Am I right about that? I think you're pretty much right, Mike. You know, the, the quick check of the end-all, be-all, which is Wikipedia. You know, it says it's the first song made by a hip-hop or rap group. So, you know, maybe people were, were rapping before, but this is, you know, pretty much known to be the classic, the classic, the in quotation marks. So, not a bad song to lead off with, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I, I, took, a, I took a class a couple years ago in college on kind of like different subcultures. One of the ones we studied was hip-hop. I mean, you're the hip-hop expert. I'm like your classic white suburban grunge, post-grunge alternative rock fan. But right. we, we took a class on hip-hop, and we learned that this was kind of the first song, but we also learned they kind of stole a lot of the beats from, like, like you know, the underground artists, you know. So, I mean, that's, yeah. what I, that's all I know. So I'm just going with the assumption that it's the original rap song. Hey, stealing beats, it, everyone does it in hip-hop. So it's like, yeah, you can be creative, but you also use others for that creativity. Anyway, yeah, let's let's get into the Wizards season so far. Two and one, obviously. They they win in Dallas. They lose in Atlanta, and they win decisively last night against the Nets. Real quick, I mean, what do you think? What's the what's your big takeaway so far from the first three games of the season? I I really like how Flip Saunders has his team listening to him. You know, obviously they needed to respond with a better effort, especially like in terms of offense, and that's of course led by Gilbert Arenas. So they needed to respond in a better effort against the Nets than they than they had down in Atlanta, and maybe some of that's opening night and they're getting excited about you know first home game. But still, I think Flip really got them to respond well. I mean, yeah, the Nets are bad. I'm picking them to be absolutely last in the East this year, but still, uh, an efficient offense is an efficient offense, and they look great. Yeah, I mean, they scored 123 points and. You know, Flip mentioned this in the post-game press conference. They didn't run that much. I think they only had 10 fast break points. I, I'm not sure what the pace of the game was. I haven't checked that yet, but I imagine it wasn't too fast. So, I mean, the way they were ex- able to execute in the half court, and that kind of leads to the one takeaway I have in the first three games, and I kind of wrote about this last night. When they play Gilbert with Randy Foy and Mike Miller together, that lineup is lights out on offense because they all have driving lanes, and they can all score and shoot and pass. I mean, you love Karan Butler, but he's he's a really good 17 feet and in player. He doesn't have the handling skills in the deep shooting range of Floyd Miller. And every game so far, that lineup has had a positive impact, even in the Atlanta games. So that's the one takeaway I have is that, you know, if, if this is like the Wizards' closing lineup, if Flip Saunders sees that this lineup is working, and I think he does, what do you now do with Karan or Antoine when they come back? It's an interesting situation, I think. Yeah, you know what? Uh, and it comes down to the depth that everyone likes. And however it works out, it's not a bad problem to have. And like we know, this team is still has a long way to grow and come together and learn how to play with each other. So that's why I think it's kind of exciting that we see them do well in the third game of the year and know that, oh, it's, you know, it's likely going to get better. Yeah, it's absolutely a great problem to have. Like, no question about it. And I feel very confident with Flip Saunders figuring things out. You know, much more confident than previous coaches. So it's definitely a great problem to have. But as we all know, the big game this week, Cleveland's coming up on the third. You would think that Gilbert Arenas would be very excited about the game, but the new subdued Gilbert Arenas wasn't so excited about it when he was asked about it. Take a listen. You excited for Cleveland on Tuesday? I don't get excited anymore. 
and uh, I just watch my game film and then assess it when we get out there. Okay, while Arenas obviously sounds like he's not too excited, I mean, who knows how he really feels about the game. Surely there will be players on both sides of the ball and fans who are, who are going to get up a little bit more for the first meeting between the, the Cavs and the Wizards this season. So you talk about that rivalry between the two teams, if you even want to call it a rivalry. Some people don't. You know, there's, there's certainly opinions. But we're going to have a couple Cavs bloggers here to get a, on the podcast today to get a different perspective. One will be Cavs the blog, which is in ESPN's True Hoop Network, and the other blog will be Waiting for Next Year, which is a good general Cleveland sports blog. So, yeah, we're, we're talking to the enemy, as you would say. But, yeah, we're going to talk to them about what their thoughts on this rivalry or whatever you want to call this are, how, why they think these two teams and these two fan bases don't really like each other very much, and what's going on with Cleveland this year. I mean, Kyle, they're 2-2, two and two and they haven't looked all that great. You know, this is supposed to be a great, you know, championship-contending team, and they've had some fair problems so far. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be talking first with Cavs the blog, and then later on with Waiting for Next Year. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Dagger Report. Cavaliers edition. The Wizards set to play the Cavs next week. We've got a couple Cleveland Cavaliers bloggers lined up. The first guy we're talking to right now is John Krolik from Cavs a Blog on ESPN Troop. He also writes for Slam Online. John, welcome to the show. Hey man, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. John, you know, obviously this is what some may consider a rivalry. I think I would say it is, you know, for certain reasons. But let's let's ask you first. Do you consider the Wizards and Cavaliers to be rivals or a rivalry? Oh, I, I think I do. I think I think there's a lot of animosity when the teams play each other. I think everything steps up a notch of intensity, especially on the wizard side, when the two teams play, play each other. But yeah, I feel like the Cavs would be less willing to admit it's a rivalry, but I think it's, it, I think it's definitely a rivalry, regardless of what sort of the Cavs would say about it. But yeah, I would definitely say it's a rivalry. What do you think yeah. about, you know, those, those people that say, well, it's not a rivalry because the Cavs always win. I mean, how would you respond to that? You know, I, I, that's sort of one idea about it, but, uh, you know, they've won every playoff series, but there have been some moments. I mean, they're the basic, you know, I've got sort of came with a theory. I think you can boil the sort of rivalry down to three watershed moments over the last couple mm-hmm. of years. You know, the first one you've got is uh, in that 2006 playoff series, and you've got, you know, really it was such a great series, but I think really what sort of the, a lot of the rivalry anxiety stems from that one moment in a game four where LeBron hits that game winner and sort of uh, does some questionable footwork uh, over Michael Ruffin. <laughs> I'm glad he can admit uh, it. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it was a blatant walk. But yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of anxiety that stems from sort of that, and I think those are sort of the conflicts to get replayed again. You know, a lot of what I've seen, you know, when I hop into a Wizards message board or whatever it is, is you know that there's some, that the league is helping them, that they're they're cheating. You know, somehow they're sort of the darlings of the league, and the Wizards are sort of this countercultural team. Who, who, you know, they don't get a lot of help and they don't get a lot of national media attention. And, you know, it's it's sort of, uh, I guess, encapsulated by that sort of moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and another thing is that 2006, was, that was a pretty special team that the Wizards had, especially with Arenas and sort of the cult of personality that formed around him. You know, Will Leach yeah. in his book had that great essay about uh, why Gil Arenas is more important than LeBron James. And it sort of captured how a lot of people felt at that moment, that, you know, this is, this is yeah. before Twitter and everything. This is when Arenas was sort of this countercultural superstar because... He had this blog, and meanwhile, LeBron is sort of this old guy with, you know, this old model guy with a very polished media image. You know, he wasn't going to make any on-camera slip-ups, and he was going to stay very true to form, and meanwhile, you know, Gilbert was being Gilbert. And at the end of that series, you know, after the game six, when Gilbert had those misses, that was, in a way, sort you know, obviously injuries were a massive part. But, uh, you know, after missing those free throws, that was kind of the end of the meteoric rise of Gilbert Arenas as a cult figure. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, not obviously, again, injuries played a massive part, but, uh, you know, I was, this is when I was reading Free Darko, because I remember that Wizard team having a real cult of personality, you know, especially because of how great of a series that was, because neither team played defense. They just sort of stood and slugged at each other down, down the stretch. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, well, um, but, for, for the record, I mean, since the, the season these teams first met up in the playoffs, the, the, the Wizards have taken the, the regular season games 8-6, to six, but, yeah, the Cavs obviously won in that 06 series 4-2, to two. In 07, the Cleveland swept the first round 4 nothing. Of course, yeah. the Wizards didn't I mean, have Arenas or yeah, Karan Butler. It's questionable. Then, you know, uh, in 08, the Cavs won 4-2. to two. Arenas played four games, a total of 94 minutes. He wasn't really back because he'd been out pretty much all year, you know, with the injury. And But, yeah, I, I agree with you, John, on the rivalry. I mean, the, the definition of rivalry doesn't necessarily include wins and losses. It's do these two teams kind of get up to play each other more than they normally would, you know, any other team in the NBA. Sure, like the Cavs might also get up for the Celtics or anyone else, but it just seems with the – the animosity from each side and the, you know, it's a rivalry. But um, but you mentioned something interesting about Gilbert Arenas' rise um, versus, and then versus LeBron's kind of guarded media personality. And I know Mike, you know, on our podcast a while back with Hardwood Paroxysm, he kind of made some interesting points on that. What do you think of that, Mike? Well, yeah, I mean, the Colts' personality is a great point. To go along with that, one of my theories is that it's not just the Colts' personality, it's that nobody expected Gilbert to be any good. I mean, you talk about this underdog mentality. I mean, nobody embodies the underdog mentality like Gilbert Arenas. And, you know, as great as LeBron James is, and as much as he should be praised for exceeding even great expectations, he has always had great expectations. I mean, LeBron James hasn't been counted out of too many things, you know, in his life. So I think that's a huge part of why this is such a big rivalry. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, you know, I think it, it serves into, again, a lot of those anxieties that for LeBron is coming as the golden child or, you know, why do I even need to say the golden child? I'll call him what he, you know, he calls himself the chosen one. It's tattooed on his back. <laughs> uh, you know, why, why, even, why even have to make something new up? And, yeah, and, you know, Gilbert spent a lot of time in the Bay Area, so his sort of, he's sort of on the underdog and I wear zero because I get no respect thing. Uh, I played out a little because he was pretty, you know, I remember his days in Golden State. He was pretty quickly beloved and they wanted him back pretty quickly. Right. He, you know, he's definitely got that complex. You know, he wears number zero because he gets no respect. That he's sort of always going to be the underdog. But, uh, but, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, and just sort of finish my point on his cult of personality from, uh, 
from from earlier after that game six. You know, it almost goes back to the you know the Bull Durham thing where he's talking to Nuke about the sandals. And you know, if you're winning, everyone everyone loves a quirky winner. Right. If you're yeah. you know if you're not winning playoff series and playoff games, you know it's just people get tired of it. And even you know as not you know not something I really agree with because I think you know Gilbert obviously look at everyone twittering now. You know, Gilbert was really the guy who started that. But, you know, yeah. in terms of the general public, there's definitely – there people are less willing to accept quirky from guys who aren't uh, winning a lot of games, making doing good things and advancing deep. Absolutely. And, you know, what's funny is now Gilbert has taken a complete 180 thus far this year and is now so serious. And, you know, it was funny. We, we interviewed him last night in the scrum after the game that they played last night. And there were, there were a couple people who were asking, you know, it must have felt good for the crowd to be chanting your name. And it must have been great to come out and come out like this at home. And his response was, well, I'm just playing basketball. That stuff doesn't really get me anymore. Do you think that that may tra- – I mean, that because if that's if, – if your argument is that that's such – and I agree with you, is that that's such a big part of why these two teams became rivals. What happens now that Gilbert is no longer Mr. Quirky, but now he's much more serious? I don't know. You know, um, Mike, I think, yeah, he's serious. He wants to play basketball, and that's like, yeah, you know, he his portrayal in the media, he kind of got jaded by that. But at the same time, I find his responses now, his kind of coyness, his just kind of mundane dealings with the media, I find those to be quirky in themselves. So it's it's still, I think Gilbert Arenas hmm. is still Interesting. somewhat of a, uh, he's a character, whether he's you know out blogging in the open or whether he's just acting the way he is now with the media. That's interesting. That's a good point too. You know, and my, it, one of the, Mark Cuban said that it's like a brilliant marketing tactic for him to just suddenly not talk, and now everybody still writes about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So going back to something you said earlier, John, you said that um, the Wizards. You think the Wizards players get up for this more than the Cavs players? Why do you think that might be? I mean, I think my direct quote is: I think that the Cavaliers players and fans would definitely be a lot less willing to admit that they get up for the game a lot more. Right. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, at least as the Cavs are saying, there's a deal of truth to, to this and there's a deal of untruth to it, is that, you know, they're worried about beating the Bostons and beating the Lakers and, be, you know, they, mm-hmm. they were so close. You know, they're a 66-win team. You know, everyone becomes your rival to a point. Yeah, it's true. On your way to a yeah. championship. You know, I don't think it would give the Cavaliers really, you know, when, when the Cavaliers beat the Wizards, what I feel is just intense relief. It's just like, oh, like, you know, it just doesn't really make it sweeter beating the Wizards, but, like, it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worse losing to the Wizards. Like, it's yeah. just, like, really... Yeah, I hear you. Good point. But, I mean, yeah, you know, I think Wiznuts had a thing right before they the, the last time they played each other and Gilbert was back. Like, this is our playoffs. Right. This season. I don't... Yeah, and I don't think you're, you'll find that sentiment from the Cavaliers, you know, just because... But they, you know, they the do hate themselves some, uh, some Deshaun Stevenson, you know, the, oh. the preseason came in Cleveland. There's some guy, some airport worker who went past Deshaun on the shoulder and said, hey, man, I hate you. And so... But, you know, the, at least from the fan part, they they still dislike the Wizards enough to get up for this game. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask about Deshaun because Deshaun wasn't there in 06 or 07. Yeah, he talked about it several stages of the Cavs-Wizards rivalry. It seems like a new one started when Deshaun came in there. Yeah, watershed moment number two would be 2008 and the series of Deshaun. Like, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty good play, six-game playoff series, I believe, in, in 08. I think it went to six. You know, it was a good series. Delonte had, uh, you know, last, second, three, and one. But the first thing, second and third thing that pops in my mind when I think about that series is Deshaun Stevenson. You know, it's a role-playing, you know, spot-up shooting perimeter defender who just absolutely became became sort of the face of a playoff series. And just, yeah, I mean, watershed moment number two would be the series of Deshaun just because, 
He is. A, I don't even. I'm generally speaking, I can't really even say I dislike him. He's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, is that an opinion that a lot of Cavs fans share? That you know, it's not even that hard for Cavs fans to really get annoyed by him. It's just Cavs fans are like, who is this guy? Again, I think that's what they say. It is. It's like he's not really. All the Cavs fans sort of know that like the ultimate sort of way to. Uh, you know, that Deshaun just does not want to be loved. He just doesn't want people to not pay attention to him. So everyone sort of yeah. wishes that they, could, that they could not pay attention to him. Um, and they, mm-hmm. they'll say they, that they don't pay attention to him. But he's you know, he's not on the court that much anymore. But he got his 15 minutes of fame in that series, man. And, he, and he's been coming back for more. Because that season, he'd been a pretty productive role player. You know, he's a good perimeter defender. Uh, didn't really take that yeah. shots as a three-point shooter, and then and, and he's still kind of coming into that role this year. Even though the the Wizards have a you know crowded backcourt. I mean, last night uh, against the Nets, he was still hitting a couple threes. He still you know could not feel his face. Um, one correction: Deshaun was actually with the Wizards in 06-07. It was that 05 06 oh, that's season. You know, true. LeBron uh, and LeBron whispered into Arenas' ear at the free throw line. That's the that's where uh, Deshaun wasn't around, but you know it kind of goes past what the fans think of uh, Deshaun Stevenson because he really just doesn't like LeBron James and anything to do with LeBron James. I mean, yes, he's made a fuss over Mike Miller even wearing LeBron James shoes. So those two players, LeBron and Deshaun specifically, do not like each other at all. And you know what I find so interesting is that there are certainly some Wizards fans that are like, wow, what is Deshaun Stevenson doing? But I would say there are a lot more that say, yeah, that's right, Deshaun. You challenged the golden boy LeBron James. It goes back to this underdog mentality we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I mean, my thing with Deshaun is that, you know, he does the original thing, which is that he says he's overrated. Then he sort of hedges on it. You know, they ask him about it, and he's like, look, I didn't say he was bad. I didn't say he wasn't great. You know, I certainly didn't say I was better. I just think the guy's a little overrated. But then, you know, LeBron makes this soldier boy comment, which is, you know, as ridiculous as a response as you're going to find to anything. And the thing sort of picks up steam, takes on a life of its own. At the time, that I always respect Gil Arenas because I think he was very refreshingly real. I never think his act sort of went into self-parody. Like, I think there's a feeling to me, and I think a lot of the guys fans, that Deshaun sort of was and is sort of milking his 15 minutes with LeBron. Like, I saw him quoted the other day as like, I'm the most hated player in the league. You know, like he's trying to make himself like a wrestling heel or something. But even with Arenas as kind of counterculture hero, maybe in a way it's like nobody recognizes him. You look at his career arc. I mean, he was in he was in some terrible situations until he got to D.C. So it almost seems to me like there, there's as much of a counterculture, everybody counting me out deal with Stevenson as there is with Gilbert Arenas. The only difference is that Gilbert Arenas is a superstar player and healthy, and Deshaun Stevenson is a you know role-playing shooting guard. role player. And, and, he, and he's a role player who, when he came in, it, uh, I think it was, what, like a 16th or 14th pick uh, directly out of high school? Yeah, 2000. I think it was later than that, too. Like 19th? I don't remember exactly. And coming first round straight out of high school, I mean, in one of NBADraft.net's low moments, if you can find his profile, which I could and I was looking for the other day, his comparable was Michael Jordan. Um, oh, yeah. He was a 23rd pick in 23rd. 2000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I guess that, that, that screwed me up a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, Anytime you get drafted in the first round straight out of high school, I mean, this is a guy who had a lot of talent. Uh, he's a mm-hmm. pretty good athlete, you know, and ended up being a bench warmer and then eventually only found success as a role player. So I think there's yeah. sort of some of that pent-up anxiety about, you know, and, you know, you see it a lot with a lot of these guys like Roger Bell and Bruce Bowen and, 
You know, if these guys were really good athletes and at lower levels were sort of dominating with their athleticism, but in the NBA have sort of had to temper everything down and offensively be spot-up shooters. You know, you know, you see some of these guys who, I think Deshaun's the case, where it's kind of just a lot of sort of leftover anxiety and ag- aggression because, you know, he sort of fits as a role player, but, uh, you know, he's a very athletic guy with a lot of talent. Let me ask you this question kind of in the reverse, like that Matt Moore of Harder Paroxysm asked Kyle and I. He asked us, if you take LeBron James off the Cavs, do you still have a problem with them? I'm going to ask you, if you take the Sean Stevenson off the Wizards, do you still have a problem with the Wizards as a Cavs fan? Obviously, you know, I'm in locker and stuff like that when I'm working for Slam down here. I wouldn't say that I have a problem with any particular, like, team or players. I can't even really say that I, that Deshaun Stevenson has made my life worse. Like, he's just, I've, yeah, no, I've sort of enjoyed it. But, you know, and, and there are guys who are just, kind of like Karan Butler, just being one of the guys who's just almost beyond reproach, um, just because, you know, of his story and everything and how he plays the game. He's so tough and he plays the game very well. So, I mean, I personally would, the actual Wizards team, I would not say I have any sort of problem with them. Some of the fans, uh, on occasion, will make your day a little more interesting. In terms of having a, a problem with, like, you know, an actual, um, you know, an actual team, you know, the, the players themselves, like, no, I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so at all. Um, yeah, I mean that. That's kind of my reaction to just recently, just because I've had a chance to get to know some of these guys from talking to them, you know, in the locker room because we're starting to get access. Yeah. But let's say if you're a fan, you know, it, it's interesting because a lot of Wizards fans that frequent our sites, you know, yeah, they don't like LeBron James, but, you know, if you if you go into a game thread, they're complaining as much about, like, the Jurus Legauskas' like, you know, tactics, Anderson Vergeau swapping, you know, all, all these other parts of the Cavs that I never would have thought it would have been a problem. I mean, I, I get Vergeau, but some of these, you know, complaints I never would have thought would have been a problem before these teams have become, like, you know, rivals. Yeah, and Legauskas, I would have imagined, would have been sort of our version of Butler, because um, he's, yeah, exactly. he's a clap act. Been around for just a long time, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it just it feeds on itself at this point, obviously. And and if Anderson Vernon is playing against you, I can I can see how you get annoying fairly quickly. Yeah, and, and in general, when fans are so in tune when these two teams play, they're going to notice more. I mean, if they were as in tune when the Wizards played the Bobcats, they might you know notice other things about their players that that would get on their nerves. So it's I think it speaks of this rivalry that fans are so you know look at you look at Medjugorje flopping or you know look at. Ilgoskis' illegal screens, or look at, you know, what, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of what I see, what, what the complaining you see, and, you know, sort of add LeBron's traveling, and you've got the trifecta there. And again, a lot of it stems back to that original game four. There's just a lot of anxiety, I think, that comes from that sort of, you know, if you're going to trace everything back to a root, I think that game four would, would sort of come up. But, you know, I'll sort of say to watershed moment of the theory, of the rivalry number three, which is the crab dribble game. Um, like, just in, case, just in case you need something to ensure that this rivalry will go on forever, you get the yeah. game. I, I remember being at that game, and just the reaction of the crowd when, when they called that travel was, I, I mean, I've been to a lot of Wizards games. I can't remember a more surprised, pleasantly surprised reaction from the crowd. Cause it was like the one game of the year that people actually showed up because they were playing the Cavs. You know, that was certainly something. Anyway, I, to go back to the different players, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here a little bit. Try to speak for kind of Cavs fans, and maybe not necessarily for yourself, because I think we are all three of us are in different places than your traditional fan. Who do you think is the one player on the Wizards that Cavs fans unilaterally tend to respect, even though he plays for the Wizards? And then you can ask us who that one player in the Cavs is. But who do you think is that uh, one player in the Wizards? Um. Like I said, Cavs fans generally don't talk about the Wizards unless they're actually playing them. Like, um, I mean, I, my answer would be uh, Karan Butler 
I'm not mm-hmm. positive. I yeah, guess. I can say just because nice, you know maybe maybe if people get mean they'll give him crap off the straws or something. But in general, I, I would say Butler is just a guy who, if you know his story, obviously he's he's a, he's a very inspirational yeah. inspirational kind of story. You know, he came from that t- a tough background and. You know, he plays plays the game really well. Just one of those throwback pure scorers, the fabulous mm-hmm. year and everything. And 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 you know, he, he, like a lot of these guys in the Wizards, you know, there's the Mountain Dew thing, quitting Mountain Dew and losing 11 pounds and the straws. Yeah, and he's just kind of a. So my answer to that would be uh, Karan Butler. Uh, what yeah, I would say for the Cavs is that one guy that I think all Wizards fans respect. You know, uh, I don't know. Ironically enough, I'd almost have to say Ogaskis. I mean, he. You know, he's come back from, he had injury history early in his career, and he's really come back because people thought he was going to be a complete flop. He, he is a hard-working big man, you know, spreads the court, catches shooting touch. And so I, he's never had a personality that's been bad. Yes, people may complain about some illegal screens, but who in the NBA isn't setting illegal screens? It's like it's like holding in football. You could probably call it every single time. Right. So, I, you know, I, I would go with Ilgos because he seems like a good guy, you know, team player. Yeah. The the guy I would go with, I think, is Delonte West because West is you know one of the things that's like dominated a lot of the Wizards players have been through a lot personally. You talk about Butler, Ian Stevenson had some you know problems before he got to the league. It seems like it's a theme with a lot of Wizards to have guys who kind of overcome their own personal demons to really work on it. And when you see West struggling with his demons that he's going through. At least this is just my feeling. I feel like you get it. I respect West a lot, and I think a lot of other Wizards fans do just because they see the hardships. And this is a franchise, the Wizards, and this is with a bunch of players and a franchise as a whole that has been through a lot of bad times. And I think when you see West kind of go through the stuff he goes through, I think a lot of Wizards fans really respect that. So I know that would be my answer. Probably West. And plus, you have to you have to consider West is from DC yeah, with the high school You know, he had like Saint Saint Joe's is not that far away in Philly when West and uh, Jameer Nelson were teaming up for a Final Four run. They like kind of captured you know the fandom, the college basketball fandom around this area. So. I think his connection to the DMV area kind of speaks to, to that, too, Mike. Yeah, I think it's a good point, too. So. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on, John. Much appreciated. Right. Some great talk about the rivalry. When we get back, we're going to talk to the blogger from Waiting for Next Year about similar stuff. We'll take a break. We'll see you then. All right, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Dagger Report, a Washington Wizards podcast with Mike Prada of Bullets Forever, and I'm Kyle Weedai of TruthAboutIt.net. Um, we just spoke with John Krolik of the Cavs blog, kind of touching on the, the rivalry between the two teams, and now we have another guest, another Cavs blogger, well, more of a kind of a general Cleveland blogger, too. Um, it's Andrew Schnitke. Excuse me, I messed up your name a little bit, but um, this one is Rock King from uh, the blog Waiting for for next year. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. 
We'll prompt you with the very first question we prompted John earlier, which is, do you consider the Cavaliers and the Wizards rivals? Is this a rivalry to you? And that's such a tough question because I think Cavs fans have kind of a unique perspective on this in that beginning in, I think it was uh, 88, Michael Jordan knocked the Cavs out of the playoffs five times in seven years. And I actually wrote about this when uh, Jordan got elected to the Hall of Fame about how for Cavs fans, we never appreciated Michael Jordan because we just hated him so much that we felt like the Bulls were our big rivals and, oh, we couldn't stand him. We took the light in any little thing that, that would happen uh, negatively towards Michael Jordan. And it just kind of went on that way. But I don't think the Bulls ever fully looked down the Cavs the same way as the Cavs looked at the Bulls. And now I feel like we're kind of maybe a little bit on the other side of it, where I do feel that the Wizards hate the Cavs a lot more than the Cavs hate the Wizards. But that being said, I can't deny that I take a little bit more delight when we do beat the Wizards now, just because when you play a team three years in the playoffs, that's going to happen. You get familiar with them. You know all the players. I feel like I know the Wizards better than most of the other uh, NBA teams, and that's just because we've played them so much the last few years. So it is a rivalry. I don't think it's the Cavs feel that it's as intense as maybe a lot of the Wizards fans do, but and we'll see it on our comments section. When we beat the Wizards, our commenters get uh, get pretty excited. So it is a rivalry. <laughs> it's just maybe not quite as heated, I think, as maybe it's seen in Washington. Yeah, and then a lot of people talk about classic rivalries, you know, Lakers-Celtics and what have you. And, and this could, you know, it could be a temporary one. It might not be. But, yeah, honestly, for it to go to that next level of rivalry, the Wizards will certainly have to win a playoff series against Cleveland. I mean, you know, they can't do a lot of talking until they do that. It almost sounds like you're saying, and I, I'm not saying I disagree, I just want to get your thoughts on this. You almost like you're saying, because the Cavs always win, and because at least the last two series hasn't been as competitive as the first one, then it's not a rivalry until the Wizards win. Do you think that whoever wins should determine what a rivalry is? Because that's not what John said, and I, I kind of agree with him. It's that, you know, the bottom line is that these teams don't really like each other, and that's enough to make it a rivalry. I mean, when you have heck, Papa John's giving free pizzas to the entire state of Ohio because uh, there were shirts in uh, Washington that were derogatory towards the Cavs, like, I don't remember what those shirts said. If you guys remember what they are, I don't. You know, you can remind me. I know what you're talking about. I forget what they said. Yeah, LeBron, but it, maybe LeBron being a crybaby or something to do with that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. It was something to do with the crybaby thing. And what you had was all these phone calls pouring into Papa John's from people in Ohio saying, how dare you sponsor a shirt like that? So Papa John's turns around and offers a free pizza one day for the entire state of Ohio. And I mean, I've never seen lines like that at a Papa John's. I mean, it was unbelievable. So when you have things like that going on, that is a, I mean, that's a rivalry. That's not happening with the Milwaukee Bucks when we, you know, or any, any other team could could have shirts like that, and I don't think fans would be as passionate about it. I'm not necessarily trying to say that just whoever wins the last one is sort of, you know, who controls the rivalry. What I am kind of saying, I guess, is just that I think that this rivalry in terms of the hatred is stronger on one side than it is on the other side. Yeah, that's a, and yeah I think that, that's a fair point. And between the two, the two cities and the two teams, yes, it's a rivalry. But when we start thinking about you know the national media and the, the Charles Barkleys and the Kenny Smiths of the world, they're really not going to take any rivalry word seriously until the Wizards win. And, you know, that's, that's honestly how it's got to be. So when, when the Wizards win, we'll see it escalate to the next level. And if they don't, well, 
you know, we're looking bad each year. I want to go back really quick uh, to the to the to one of the things you said earlier, which I think is really a key to this rivalry, is that we brought up Cleveland sports history, and Cleveland was very much. I totally agree that Cleveland was very much in Washington's position back when Michael Jordan played. It's the counterculture team going against the big golden boy of the league, and I really think that's how Wizards fans feel about this. And I think maybe that's what kind of fuels some of this passion because Cleveland fans were in this position many years ago and now like admit it, it must feel pretty good to have that you know LeBron James and have the people gunning for you as opposed to you gunning for them it must feel pretty good and I think that kind of that kind of fuels the rivalry even more yeah I think that's certainly a very valid point and you know I it's funny that you said that you know it does feel good when you're as you know Cleveland fans that suddenly we have the sort of poster child of the sport, if you will, or at least one of the small handful of them. And throughout, in my lifetime, none of the Cleveland sports franchises have had that. So it's nice to have, and I I try to tell that to people all the time, you know, our commenters get very touchy about any kind of criticism that LeBron takes and people taking what they perceive as cheap shots at LeBron. And I try to tell them, I said, look, that goes with the territory. And if dealing with... (laughs) You know, in having to read articles by people, um, you know, even even as far as talking about the free agency in 2010, whether he's going to go to New York or New Jersey, and, you know, we get a little bit tired of reading that, but I always tell people, if that's the price I have to pay for being able to have LeBron James play for my team and get to watch him play 82 games in a season, I'll take that trade-off. That's, yeah. I, it's much preferable to having this great team that we all loved in the late 80s and early 90s, but then every year getting knocked out by Michael Jordan. I, I like being on this side of it a lot better. <laughs> Andrew, in terms of the, your article you cited earlier that you wrote near Jordan's Hall of Fame induction, yeah, I really enjoyed that piece You know, comparing you know, Jordan to Cleveland and maybe LeBron to D.C., Although I will say, for that to be a little more valid, LeBron must win a championship in Cleveland first, because otherwise, you know, every time he loses in the playoffs, Wizards fans are just going to snicker and say, "Ah, oh, you know, he can't do it." So he has a little work to in front of him. And that's an excellent but, point. And I, real quick, I just want to say that I do think one other thing that sort of a difference from a Cleveland fan's point of view on this is that every time you know the Cavs beat the Wizards, it was in the first round. And then the Cavs went on, and us as Cleveland fans were so focused on getting that championship because there are no guarantees how long we're going to have LeBron that that quickly becomes yeah. our focus. That It's like, okay, we're done with Washington. We're on to the Pistons now, and we played two great series with the Pistons, and that got real heated with them. So then almost our, it was like our rivalry just shifted, like, okay, well, we're done with the Wizards. Now the Pistons are our rivals. Mm-hmm. And so we have this other goal that we're so fixated on that it is hard for us to really take a rivalry seriously because we just want that championship. And in some ways, I feel like if we could get that championship, then we could really embrace having all these rivalries and everything that goes with it. But right now, Hmm. that focus is just we need to get that championship while we know for a fact that LeBron's here. Yeah, that's that's a good point. (laughs) So you guys got bigger fish to pry. John said the same thing. But anyway... Speaking of getting that championship, you know, I know you probably don't want to talk about the Cavs' slow stars this year, yeah. but that's why we got you. So, 2-2, two and two, they didn't look so good in the first two games. They looked a little better in the second two games. If you had to pick one thing that's really hurting this team right now, what do you think it is? It, it's Shaq. 
I really do feel that getting Shaquille O'Neal looked on paper like a great move. Well, you know, I know a lot of people doubted it, but I, I liked the move because I said, heck, we're getting rid of two players that aren't helping us at all in Pavlovich and Ben Wallace, So, and then we're getting Shaq. So that seems like a plus. However, the biggest problem is you insert Shaq into this offensive lineup, and the Cavs have no idea how to utilize him whatsoever. And so what you're seeing happen is they kind of have – two different offensive identities butting heads right now. And what I mean by that is if you have Shaquille O'Neal on your team, you have to initiate the offense through him. He has to get touches early in the possession because if you're not feeding him in the post, what is he on your team for? What is he out there providing for you? Because instead what the Cavs are doing is they're trying to run their same offenses last year when they had Zajunas Ogowskis starting. And so Shaq's coming out to set a pick for Mo Williams well, now all the defenders are doing is packing into the lane because they could care less if Shaq's going to flare outside. You know, they'll let him do that all day long. Yeah. And so it's it's just bogging down a, a traditionally bad offense anyways. It's bogging it down even more. Mo Williams is completely out of his game. And as a result, they have no identity going on with him right now. So to me, that's the biggest problem. And that's why I feel like, if I were Mike Brown, I would actually be starting Zajunas Ogowskis right now because I think he fits a little bit better with the first unit offense. And then what you could do is, whereas right now the Cavs are getting killed when LeBron goes to the bench, well, now you let Shaq come in with the second unit, and then you run your offense through him, and then you have somebody that you can lean on a little bit more uh, when, Le- when LeBron's going to the bench. So I think that's the biggest thing that's standing out for me so far through four games. It's interesting you cite uh, Mo Williams. It seems like with Shaq in the picture and some of the other pieces you guys added in the offseason that the pressure has been taken off him a little bit to sort of be that Robin to LeBron's Batman. Now, since he's had this slow start, is that, you know, is that affecting him in a negative way or do you think that's going to work out more in the long run where people may kind of forget about Mo a little more in offense? You know, the thing with Mo Williams is he's a guy who kind of feeds on his own swagger a little bit, and I know that you know a lot of people don't necessarily like that about him, and he definitely took a lot of heat last year for his comments uh, in the Orlando series, and then he kind of didn't back them up with his play. But he needs that edge when he plays. And so last year what you saw was LeBron would let Mo get going early. Mo tended to be the first guy to get going offensively because if you can get him going early – he's going to feed on that later in the game. And we saw that uh, in last night's game against Charlotte. Both finally got going early, and they got, they got him active and involved in the offense. So what happens is when you take that pressure off of him, I don't think it makes him more effective. I think it actually makes him less effective because he tends to disappear into the offense a little bit because he has no sort of rhythm going on, and he, he needs to get th- that early action. Yeah, I want to go back to Shaq. I, to- I actually kind of agree with your suggestion. I mean, it makes sense logically, but will Mike Brown, A, do that, and B, if he Mike Brown does that, will Shaq accept it? I mean, it's- for someone like him, I don't know if he would really want to go to the bench, even if it might I, affect- make the team better, might make him better. Yeah, I mean, we've heard, you know, Shaq's been saying all offseason that, you know, oh, he just wants the ring now at this point, and, you know, it's LeBron's team, and he's willing to do whatever the coach says, and that all sounds good, but, I mean, anybody who's followed Shaq in his career knows he's not going to be happy if you go to the bench at all, and when you have an unhappy Shaq on your team, it can just fracture everything. So I think that's Mike Brown's challenge, because I have to believe that Mike Brown can see that 
Zdrzynas Ogalski just fits better with that first unit offense. I refuse to believe that he can't see that. I just think he can't logically send Shaq to the bench. When you're dealing with Shaq, you're dealing with a different personality than certainly anybody else on the team, and you have to take that into consideration, I would think. So I don't expect him to ever uh, send Shaq to the bench, but I certainly think it would be a better move for the team. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely seen from my viewpoint that Shaq's ego would just not allow him to come off the bench. So then you say, okay, well, he and Betajel aren't working well together in the post. What's the answer there? Do you start LeBron at the four and go with like a, a smaller combination of uh, the one, two, and three? What, what goes on there? Yeah, I think a lot of people were really hoping that J.J. Hickson would actually develop to the point that he would be able to start at the four because I think that would kind of be a good counterbalance to Shaq. But Hickson's been just awful uh, throughout the first uh, four games this year, so he sort of took that completely out of the equation. And you're right, the Cavs don't have an obvious answer staring them in the face right now. We know we've got Leon Poe coming back after the All-Star break, and that will certainly help just to – be able to try out different combinations, and it's certainly better than throwing Shaq and Z out there at the same time, as we've seen God, Mike Brown. Somehow, uh, he actually tried to do that, and I mean, I can't even explain that, but... um, Didn't he do it against Toronto, too? Like, the worst team in the league, you could possibly do that. Yeah, well, Cavaliers were down 18 points at halftime, and he's comes out in the second half and he goes with the small lineup and the Cavaliers completely erase that lead. And they get it back to even in the third quarter. And then LeBron goes to the bench. The Raptors start to pull up, I think it was six points uh, at the end of the third. And then all of a sudden they come out in the fourth quarter with Shaq and Z out there together. And you know a team like Toronto, oh, they were just salivating at the sight of that. And sure enough, I mean, you, you just saw them just up and down the court Two passes, easy basket. Two passes, easy basket. And at that point, the Raptors pulled away, and the Cavs were never able to seriously get back into the game. So it's certainly a problem. That front court depth is certainly a problem because I just don't know what kind of options Mike Brown has at his disposal. So the best you can do, really, I guess, is like you suggested, uh, putting LeBron at the four. But LeBron sometimes has been a little bit hesitant to play the four. it's a bad situation right now. And that's why I've said I'm not convinced right now that the Cavaliers are a championship-caliber team as they are right now. I think Danny Ferry is going to make a move at some point this year just to shake things up, get somebody in there that can work with uh, with Shaq because Verjao is not doing it. You certainly know Z can't do it. Hickson is not playing well, and it's a problem. Is Steven Jackson the answer? I know you guys are really trying to, to get him, and I've, it's been tossed around sending Ogoskis to, to Golden State, but I don't think the Warriors are having that. They're actually just kind of playing their, their cards close to their vest and seeing where Jackson's value goes. But what, what do you think of him being in addition to the to the Cavs? Well, I think that Steven Jackson would definitely have a role on the team, and he would definitely improve the offense. However, the thing you had to realize with Steven Jackson is he's not a great shooter. Um, he, you know, he's a, he's a decent shooter, but not a great shooter. But he definitely is more more of a slasher. And I worry about Mike Brown's ability to figure out a way to work him into the offense and make it successful. Because you, if you certainly look at, it, and I hate, I'm not I hate comparing Steven Jackson to Larry Hughes, but when Larry Hughes was here in Cleveland, Mike Brown was never able to figure out how to use a player like Larry Hughes. And I think if you bring Steven Jackson's game into Cleveland, I don't know how well Mike Brown would do at figuring out how to work him. 
But besides that, I think the Cavaliers are hesitant to send Ilgowskis. I think not only is Golden State not not necessarily interested, but I don't think Cleveland's all that interested in sending Ilgowskis for Steven Jackson because all you're doing is taking away another front court player. And with the way, like I said, with the way Hickson's been playing, that creates an even bigger hole until Leon Poe mm-hmm. comes back. We talked a lot about the offense. What about Shaq on defense? The Cavs have always been a great defensive team. I mean, it has, you know, against Toronto, they really struggled. What's it like integrating Shaq to that defensive system? Yeah, you're certainly seeing uh, that's, a, that's a work in progress. I think that Mike Brown can find a way to make Shaq work in that defense. I, for all the doubt I have about Mike Brown as an offensive coach, I have all the confidence in the world in him as a defensive coach, and I think mm-hmm. he can find a way to make it work. But the problem is the defenses that the Cavaliers run are actually pretty intricate, and it takes some time to pick up. Every time the Cavs have made a trade or signed a player, the new additions come in, and no matter what their reputation is as a defensive player, it's taken them some time to pick it up and figure out where their rotations are because the Cavs do a lot of rotating and switching. So I think it can work, but what you're seeing right now is Shaq just kind of, he's late on all of the switches. And so every time there's a quick pass reversing to the other side of the court, he's late getting over there and it creates a big hole underneath the basket. And as a result, teams are actually getting easy baskets inside. And we saw that a little bit with Ogowskis at the end of last year when Ogowskis seemed to be wearing down and getting tired. He was a lot slower making those switches and those rotations. And we're we're seeing the same thing with Shaq now. My hope is just that he begins to be more comfortable or familiar with the defense. He'll recognize those switches earlier and can be able to anticipate it earlier and be a little bit quicker in getting over and helping out. But it remains to be seen whether he's willing to pick that up or not. The one guy who also is missing, or I guess he just came back on Saturday, that's a, that was a big part of this team last year, is Delonte West. And we all know his personal troubles. How much do you think the Cavs missed him at the start of the year? I've been telling people for the longest time that Delonte West is the second most valuable player on the Cavaliers. And uh, I think some of his numbers bear that out. Um, if, if you look at his net uh, plus minus last year, he was 10th in the NBA. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. And that speaks volumes to all of the intangibles that he does. And I know people will throw around the word intangibles a lot, but Delonte gives you a little bit of everything. He may not necessarily be great at any one thing other than perimeter defense, but he's a he's a good rebounder for, for, for that position. He's good at getting assists. He's excellent at coming up with the big steals in the second half when you need a defensive play. He comes up with it time and time again. So he's a very, very important part of how this defense works. And particularly when you play teams that have those the quick slashing point guards, and that's certainly who the Cavs had in their first two opponents between Rajon Rondo and uh, Jose Calderon, both of those guys were just killing Mo Williams and Anthony Parker. Neither of those guys were able to slow them down at all. And the way the Cavs' defense is designed, if, you, if a point guard can break down a perimeter line, if they can get past that with the dribble, the whole defense breaks down and it creates easy baskets underneath. And you saw Boston and Toronto just take care of that all day. And where Delonte helps with that is, in the past, Mike Brown's been able to start out with Mo Williams on, say, Rondo, but then after Rondo gets going, he switches Delonte West over to him. West goes on there. He does a much better job of being physical with him, slowing him down from getting into the lane. And as a result, the teams have to you know, sort of develop their offense more, and it requires, requires them to take more time into the uh, shot clock, which certainly plays right into the Cavs' strengths defensively. So that's where Delonte West really helps out. I can yeah. think of a quick point guard that's going to give the Cavs trouble if Delonte's not in. Gilbert Arenas. Oh. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I do think that that's the big key uh, in this matchup between the Cavs and the Wizards that we're going to see. I'm very curious to see how are the Cavs going to go about defending Gilbert because if if there's a blueprint on how to beat the Cavaliers, I still say it's it's with your point guard play. And so certainly uh, having Gilbert back healthy and obviously being very productive this year for the Wizards is a huge, huge advantage for the Wizards. And I'm very thankful that Blonte came back last night, so I'm hoping that he'll see even more more minutes and be even more effective uh, against the Wizards this week. One of the big pieces of Cleveland's big year last year was how much the offense improved, uh, at least in the regular season. But now Kuster's not there. Delonte West is just coming back, and you know we didn't even talk about how much what he does for the team on offense. Are you concerned that, and combine that with all the stuff integrating Shaq, are you concerned that this will this offense will never figure itself out because they just lose, they just lost too many tools? Losing Keister was a big loss. There's no doubt about it. But I've, I would also say, you know what, though, Keister was there in the Orlando series, and that Cavalier offense really came unraveled a lot in that series. Um, mm-hmm. So what's important for the Cavaliers, and this sounds like such a cop-out, but you need good shooting. The Cavaliers need good shooters. And with Daniel Gibson struggling with his shot, Anthony Parker has not been shooting well at all since coming over. You know, Jamario Moon has never been a good shooter. You're sort of seeing a lot of that pressure falling on, you know, Mo Williams and LeBron that it's like they're the only two shooters. And that's where getting Delonte back helps because Delonte mm-hmm. is a good shooter from almost any spot on the court. That's really, really going to help, uh, I, I think. But I don't know. I, when, when Mo Williams is going well, this offense looks really good. And so not a, a lot of people like to say that John Kuster was the sole reason for the Cavaliers' offense last year. But I really feel like two other reasons that the Cavaliers' offense improved so much last year was – they got Mo Williams, which was the point guard they've desperately needed for so long, mm-hmm. and then also the emerging season that Delonte West had, where he really kind of took the leap into becoming the player that he is. So now with those guys probably back in the lineup together, how if you're, I mean, how do you think the Wizards should defend them in the game on Tuesday, and how do you think they will defend them? Well, what's interesting about that is the fact that Delonte's not starting yet, and uh, all true. indications are that for the near future, it's still going to be Anthony Parker's job. So it remains to be seen, I guess, sort of how, the, how Mo and Delonte are going to fall in that groove together again because their spacing that those two had on the court last year was so good. It has not been that way with Mo and uh, Parker this year. So if you're going to ask me, though, how, how do you defend them, the best way to defend them absolutely is still you pack the lane and keep them outside force them to shoot from the outside as much as you can. Especially Anthony Parker, the way he's been shooting, he's got, you know, he likes shooting from the baseline, but anywhere else he doesn't look real comfortable right now in this offense. So if you can keep Parker off the baseline and stop them from getting inside at all, keep, keep them shooting from the outside, that's the best way to defend them, as far as I've seen so far. The one thing yeah. I find interesting to see how Cleveland will defend is that, you know, when the Wizards have put Arenas and Randy Ford together, it replicates in a lot of ways the type of Wes Williams backcourt that Cleveland has. The two guys who can handle, shoot, pass, they can trade off ball handling. They, they can match up with a lot of different options. They can change defensive assignments. I'm curious to see yeah. if the Cavs play Williams and West together and the Wizards counter with Arenas and Foy, who, which backcourt will win that matchup? The other interesting thing I see is if Butler doesn't play who guards LeBron James? I guess they could throw Stevenson out there for a long time, but 
LeBron's going to play like 40-plus minutes or maybe, I mean, 38-plus minutes. You're not going to play Deshaun Stevenson 38-plus minutes. So does that mean Mike Miller guards LeBron James? I mean, if you're a Cleveland fan, you probably are like that scenario. Definitely like that aspect of the matchup for sure. But at the same time, I feel like that I feel that way going into a lot of the games. You always kind of feel good about, well, who's going to defend LeBron. But Jamison's not there without Butler there. Well, now you're taking out two of the guys who have done – decent enough jobs on on LeBron in the past, that's gone. Boy, if you put Mike Miller on him, I, I just don't see that working out very well. Miller is certainly an intelligent defensive player, but I imagine just for, you know, just for about anyone in the league, including him, LeBron is a tough matchup. If Deshaun yeah, Stevenson... We've, we've, we've seen LeBron, it in the past. Yeah, and if Deshaun Stevenson's on, the, on LeBron, I'm, I'm almost afraid that the refs, being cognizant of the history between those two guys, like there's a potential for Steven to you know, pick up some quick, cheap fouls. And other than that, we could see Dominic McGuire, who's our, our kind of budding defensive specialist. We could see him in the game for you know, six to eight minutes guarding yeah. LeBron. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. I want to switch gears and go to the other end so see figure out how Cleveland guards the Wizards. Um, and one of the big things I want to ask about is that the Wizards have involved Gilbert Arenas in a lot of pick-and-rolls start the year, and we talked a little bit about Shaq Strebles guarding the pick-and-rolls. You're Mike Brown. I mean, how would you defend the Arenas and pick-and-roll with whoever he runs it with? When you look at coming into this game, I think it certainly makes your life a little bit easier that the Wizards are going to be missing a few of those weapons. You know, the funny thing about Gilbert Arenas, I guess, is you can sort of say, well, this is how we're going to defend him, but he sort, it's sort of like playing the um, oh, that, the game where you have the whack-a-mole game where you stop him from doing one thing, he says, okay, that's fine, you're going to, you're going to pack the lane and stop me from getting in there. That's fine. I'll just step back and shoot it. Or if you're going to, okay, we're going to come up and play you tight out on the perimeter. All right, well, now we're going to bring up somebody to set the pick, and I'm going to be able to get around you. A complex issue, and I'm, I don't know. I, I feel like Gilbert Arenas is certainly one of the toughest guys to sort of diagnose how are you going to stop him. I've always felt you've got to take your medicine with him. I still much prefer keep him outside, try as much as you can to defend him shooting outside, but for the most part, let him get his and stop everybody else from scoring on you. And that's mm-hmm. c- certainly been sort of the Cavaliers' motto in the past when Gilbert's been healthy. And I feel like it's been a really long time since I – mean, I'm sure you guys feel it more than us, but it's been a long time since we've seen a fully healthy Washington team to, to really get a good <laughs> sense of what their identity is going to be. But in the past, that's always been sort of what Mike Brown has said. We're going to sort of let Gilbert shoot outside. We're going to try and contend – you know, get a hand in his face as much as we can – but for the most part, keep him outside, keep him shooting out there, and let him do that, but don't let anybody else score. We're going to hammer the boards, try and win the rebounding advantage, and sort of live with it. Just kind of take, take your medicine. And I think that's worked reasonably well for the Cavaliers against them. And if I had to guess, I would expect, especially with Washington missing Butler and Jameson, I think we'll see, we'll see a lot more of that sort of mentality, I guess. Yeah. All right, Andrew, time to put you on the spot. Give me, give me a score prediction. Who do you think is going to win, and what do you think the score is going to be on for the Tuesday game? Oh, I'm notoriously bad at predicting scores here, but uh, if we're looking at this game, I think what we'll kind of see is that I'll give the Cavaliers the 108-101 victory. All right. Well, that's, we'll see how it is out, sir. I want to uh, thank you very much for coming on. I know if, despite – 
animosity, seemingly animosity between Cleveland and Washington when it comes to NBA basketball. I have to say the the Cavalier bloggers, including all the guys from Waiting for Next Year, have are nothing but some some nice guys. So I want to doesn't always extend to the blogosphere this rivalry. Right. Thanks a lot for joining us, Andrew. We really uh, we really enjoyed it and we appreciate it. All right, thanks for having me on. All right, we'll be right back to wrap the show up. Welcome back to the show. We just want to—we're going to wrap it up really quickly here. We just want to thank our two guests, John Krolik from uh, At the Blog and Sam Slam Online, and uh, Andrew from Waiting for Next Year, aka Rock King. Thanks for both of them. And yeah, Kyle, you know, big game. What's your prediction? You know, I I really hate to pick against the Wizards. But I'm just kind of afraid that the home court advantage in Cleveland is going to give the Cavs the 104 to 99 edge. I will hope otherwise, though. All right. Well, then this is the week I will be the optimist because last year, last week, I picked the Mavericks to crush the Wizards. I'm going to say the Wizards win this one. The Cavs are still flat. The Wizards are going to be ready for this one, and I'm going to say Wizards take it 107 to 98. All right. That's that. Hopefully, hopefully I'm right, uh, and I hope I'm not wrong like I was last week. All right. So that that does it for the show. Thanks again to all our guests. We will see you next week.